I'm Richard Herring. You're about to listen to my Leicester Square Theatre podcast. If you're enjoying these and you'd like to help us to do even more, then you can pay us back in a variety of ways. One of them is to go to www.gofasterstripe.com slash podcasts and download the video rather than the audio. It costs a small amount to do this, but all that money we ploughed back into making new comedy. We're not a big business. We're not to make money out of this. We just want to try and see how far we can push the genre. Uh, You can also buy DVDs and books of mine at gofasterstripe.com if you don't feel like you should pay for podcasts. But uh, it'd be lovely if you were to pay. And if you don't want to pay, then please spread the news about this podcast to your friends and see if we can get more listeners. That would be fantastic. Uh, Hope you enjoy the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Leicester Square Theatre. He may be quite old, but he can still do it two times in a night. It's Richard Herring! Thank you very much. Welcome to Richard Herring's Leicester Square Theatre podcast, or as all the cool kids are calling it, Rahel Estepath. Oh, you're much better than last week's audience. Hooray! Uh, I've always wanted to do that, and I have done it before. Uh, so, uh... How many of there's some new people? The butlers are here again. I've got just uh, show people the audience. Uh, uh, the mistake I was making when I was trying to film was trying to film through the viewfinder. I realised that's there for me. There you go. They're, they're both butlers. He's a nuclear physicist. He's lost his hat. That's he's just. I don't know. He is. He's just weird. He kind of comes to comes to all the gigs. What's your name, sir? Stuart. Stuart. Good name. Uh, Want to do a double act? Uh, what's, uh, what do you do for a living? Uh, I run a pub. You run a pub. You're fantastic. Brilliant. Whereabouts? In Cranley. In Cranley. That's quite, that's, quite, that's quite a nice little area, Cranley. What's the pub called? Give it a little... The Richard Onslow. The Richard Onslow. Who was Richard Onslow? Uh, he was uh, the MP of Guildford. He was the MP and of Guildford. His nickname was Stiff Dick. His, his nickname was... Are you trying to get on QI or something? Is that what, you, is that what you've turned up for? I've got lots of... What is the most... Uh, what is the best drink you have ever made? I've got red wine with a splash of cola. Wow, red wine with a splash of cola. They do things weird in Cranley. And uh, is this your, your, your friend or your lady, your daughter? <laughs> <laughs> what is my, it's my girlfriend. Your girlfriend's very nice. What's your name? Uh, Karen. Karen? You went, er, uh, Karen. Like you're trying to think, oh, what's the most ridiculous name I can make up? <laughs> and it was pretty, you did well. Uh, Karen. <laughs> my parents couldn't spell Karen, is that the. <laughs> Oh, was Karen in Bananarama? Don't remember. Siobhan, I remember. Which one was Karen in Bananarama? Oh, she was the sexy one. Yeah, why do I not know her name? Uh, she, was, she was a good one. What do, you, what do you do? Do you work in the pub? No, I work. Did you work as a barmaid? He kind of got, he's sort of forced you to go out because you're, to be honest, you're a lot better looking than him. So I know that for once we could look. They're looking at people at home, then look at that. Something's going on, isn't it? Uh, what? You work for a train company. Is it the Holocaust <laughs> Railways? <laughs> little back reference to last week's last time's podcast. I don't know what they're uh, uh, Very excited to be here. Uh, I've, I've been in Glasgow uh, last week uh, recording uh, a radio show, but I, I say that the, uh, the best hotel in Glasgow, the Premier Inn, got to be the best it's called the premier it's got to be the best one and then I was a bit annoyed because I looked up the road Socky Hall Street in Glasgow there's another premier in at the other end of Socky Hall Street which one's the premier in make your mind up Glasgow they can't be both the premier one uh, but my favourite thing that happened while I was there was I went down for breakfast and they have somebody who greets you and says you know have you been here before for breakfast and stuff like that 
Uh, and as I was leaving one time, a guy, a couple came down, and the woman greeting him said, Have you had breakfast before? And uh, he said, Not here. <laughs> like, <laughs> like he seriously thought she might have been worried that he'd never. I don't. Breakfast? What? I'm 35 years old, I've never heard what you can eat before lunchtime. What is this? Strange necromancy. So I did enjoy. <laughs> I think he knew, but he still felt he had to. <laughs> To just clarify, not, not. Yeah, I've had breakfast before. Sure, I'm, I'm suspicious that he hasn't had breakfast before. Um, look, we've had some fun with there. That was a lot of fun, wasn't it? And you're all warmed up now. So I think it is time to introduce this week's guest, this episode's guest. Uh, he is best known for writing two episodes of Doctor Snuggles. Just fucking awesome! I can't wait to talk to him about that. We please welcome John Lloyd, ladies and gentlemen. Mike. Well, uh, how are you doing? You all right? Yes. Looking oh, very yeah. smart. That's very nice. Yes. Getting um, on somewhere more exciting later. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect so. Stephen Fry last week was got as he was leaving. He got a phone call from the director William Freakin. <laughs> so that's the guy who was just going. Yeah, I'm just going out to see my friend who uh, uh, directed uh, The Exorcist. Uh, so, Doctor Snuggles. Do you remember much about writing Doctor Snuggles? I remember a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I used to write them with Douglas Adams. Yeah. Um, what I can remember is hmm, <laughs> the reaction there. Uh, I remember the producer was called Yoop Fish. <laughs> he was Dutch, and his secretary was called Veronica Plink. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's pronounced differently in Dutch, but it was very funny at the time. Yeah, it's quite a surreal, weird. I vaguely remember it. Dr. Snuggles. I don't know what year that was. I probably was too old to be watching kids' TV. It would have but... been the mid-70s. No, no, it's probably all right then, but it was yeah. kind of Dr. Snuggles, do-do-do-do-do-do, yeah. Slight, slightly psychedelic or something yeah. weird. and Peter Ustinov did the voiceover. Yeah, he did. Yeah. And Douglas and I used to moonlight in the evenings. We were both radio producers. Yeah. And, we would, and we used to, I mean, we got 500 quid an episode, which was absolutely, you know, could buy a house with that in 1975. <laughs> Marvellous. And how did you get... Well, get right on to Douglas Adams. We'll get this out of the way, because that's uh, the, the, probably the thing you get asked out about a lot. But how did you two get together and start writing together and working together? Uh, we met at Cambridge, um, uh, and we both ran a college review. So in those days, Footlights was considered a very naff thing to do. It was lots of, um, lots of rather nice men in uh, velvet jackets. <laughs> Hello, my dear. You look very attractive. Uh, and so he tended to avoid that in those days and um, so College Review was very cool when we were there 70, 73 or Douglas 71, 74 and so I ran a thing called the Trinity Review and Douglas was next door at St John's and he had a thing called Adam Smith Adams right. um, and uh, yeah so that's how we met and we, we didn't really know each other very well at Cambridge and afterwards we just became uh, about as good friends as you can be, really. We were very, very close. We spent a lot of time together um, trying to write things and spent a lot of time eating hamburgers at a place called Tootsie's, I remember. A very, very, uh, <laughs> very good hamburger chain it was. And we shared various flats together. And um, uh, what can I say? It was, um, it was fantastic fun. Douglas was a very, very funny and interesting guy. Um, and in those days, when young, incredibly open-minded, you know, he was willing to espouse any idea, which is what made Hitchhiker so brilliant. Yeah. And as he got older, he kind of sort of settled into a set of opinions which were very um, ossified, in my opinion, right. slightly. 
Um, Such a way, in what way? What's, what, sort, what sort of opinions? <laughs> well, he, he was a... He introduced uh, Richard Dawkins to his wife, Lala. Yes. And Dawkins basically converted Douglas from an agnostic to a sort of card-carrying atheist. Yeah. Um, uh, he became quite strident as an atheist. Well, it was just kind of... Uh, the, I have a thing, I'm not, a, I don't espouse any religious faith, um, but I, I don't consider atheism in that way a scientific position. It's kind of like, you know, like I, I don't know whether there are little green men in flying saucers either, but I don't go and shout at people who think there are. Yeah. So I... I <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should. Maybe that's where you're heading afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think it's, um, and I think... Uh, a lot of people say, oh, you know, science doesn't get enough of a voice in society. I think that's rubbish. I think it gets an enormous voice. And I also think that the idea that, you know, we're swamped by mad religious people is, is not true. There are actually an extremely small number of mad religious people. Unfortunately, they have inordinate uh, influence in terms of uh, blowing people up for no reason and so forth. But um, uh, it's just in terms of the business of um, what the point of anything is, really. Yeah. And, and I struggle, though I have for many years, I, I haven't worked it all out yet, but I can't believe that life is meaningless. Does anyone, anyone really genuinely feel that life is completely meaningless? It doesn't feel meaningless, does it? It feels confusing and annoying and frustrating, but meaningless it doesn't. Well, yeah, mate, you create your own meaning, though. It might could still be meaningless, but you know, you create your own meaning within the meaningless... I fucking failed the QI audition, that's it. (laughs) Did so well last week with Stephen. Dawkins is interesting because I'm a a big fan of his work, but if you follow him on Twitter, he's a massive prick. He just retweets all every single bit of praise for himself. He retweets everything. It's the worst thing you can do on Twitter. And then every every single argument, he'll have it like massively out in the open. Am I the only one who thinks? I mean, he's worth following. It's massively entertaining, but he's a massive dick. But he is he is married to an ex Doctor Who assistant, so you know, yeah. There's a word for it. Not Adric. One of the good ones. One of the things I did with Douglas in 1983 wrote a book called The Meaning of Live, which is still in print after amazingly 30 years this year. And John Cantor, one of Douglas's other great friends, of, and I have rewritten a thing called Afterlife, slightly yes. in homage to Douglas. And there's a word for exactly that person, right. someone who retweets praise about themselves on Twitter, <laughs> and it's a toot garook. Okay? <laughs> so that is obviously what Richard is. Yes, a little bit. He is a little bit. But, uh, but you wrote uh, some of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, so you wrote from the radio, the last couple of episodes of the yeah. radio, first series of the radio show. Well, it was kind of natural, because we wrote lots of stuff together. We, yeah. It didn't get made. We wrote a film treatment uh, for Robert Stigwood about the um, Guinness Book of Records about a, an alien race who are very good at athletics and uh, you know jumping and swimming and all that and they challenged they said they wouldn't destroy the world if we could beat them at, uh, at an uh, athletics competition and the, though they won all the athletics events we won all the you know how many people can you fit in a mini and how many <laughs> girls can you eat in, in 20 minutes and all that kind of stuff so we thought that's great. We also wrote a, I thought, brilliant um, a sitcom called, it's a rather complicated title, you have to be a bit of an astronomer, it's called Snow Seven and the White Dwarves. Um, and it was about two astronomers. There's an astronomer in there in the middle. Yeah. Of the, uh, we can pick um, up. Two astronomers sharing a, uh, 
a house and an observatory at the top of Everest, which is apparently the best place you could you could have one. Yeah, uh, one of whom is very untidy, one is very tidy. That was also another very good thing. And and, and Doctor Snuggles, uh, perhaps our only real success until <laughs> Hitchhiker came along. And as you know, Douglas was famous for missing deadlines. So after about four episodes of Hitchhiker, he was driving the producer and the production team completely insane. It'd take him nearly a year to write the first four, and he asked me if I would help him out in the last two, and we knocked them off very happily in the, in the next couple of weeks. So. Right. And it was, he, weird. It was he, weird that he, he did seem to struggle to write, because what he wrote was so great. In fact, part of the, part of the impetus with time me sort of starting to get back into writing loads of blogs and doing loads of podcasts was reading The Salmon of Doubt and seeing all these kind of ideas that that he was working on and that he got a certain way with and thinking all the stuff that he didn't do, you know, all the stuff that he didn't achieve even within the time he was here, he seemed to, like, spend a lot of time not writing. Is that fair to say? Or, or, it, or finding it difficult to write? It, it's absolutely fair. And he, he would, I'm not telling tales because he would be the first to admit, you yeah. know, I, I, love, I love deadlines, I love the sound of them whooshing by, he used to say. <laughs> um, <laughs> But this is just about... I don't want to be too sort of spiritually weird or anything, but this is the thing, is what drives somebody who absolutely hated the business of writing to make his living as one? It's rather like um, Richard Curtis pointed out to me, it's the oddest thing that Rowan Atkinson, the shyest man possibly in the universe, is probably one of the ten most famous people in the world. Why would you do that to yourself, you know? (laughs) He always said, because it was the only way he could think of, of affording the cars he likes. <laughs> I mean, that's true. But it, it's that thing. And there's a, I must tell you this great story, another thing Richard Curtis told me, um, which when uh, one of the several autobiographies uh, came out about Douglas after he died, I put this in the intro. It's written by a guy called M.J. Simpson, who was chairman of his fan club. Right. And uh, Richard and Douglas had planned to have lunch in, in London. They're, you know, they're all friends. And... Um, on the way to lunch, uh, Richard said, um, and how are you, Douglas, as you would? And Douglas said, and he's very, very puzzled in that way. He goes, yeah, I'm, I'm fine, but do you know, it's funny. I've been thinking about life, the universe, and everything, and I, do you know, I think I actually have got the real answer. So Richard thinks, well, it's got to turn, turned a bit spooky all of a sudden. So he says, well, Richard thinks to himself, I could go two routes now. I can either say, my God, Douglas, have you? What's that, then? And knowing that Douglas liked to talk, that would be the end of Richard's conversation during lunch. Douglas would just expound this amazing theory, and he'd never get to catch up on all the gossip, you know? Or he could say, says Richard, and how's Jane? Oh, well done, Douglas, and how's Jane? So that's what Richard opted to do. So he said, oh, really, Douglas, and how's Jane? Anyway, three months later, Douglas died, and Richard's been kicking himself ever since. Because of all the people I've ever met in my life, Douglas is the one person who actually had a chance of discovering what it is. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, the first thing that introduced me to your work without really... I guess I wouldn't necessarily have known it, was uh, Not Nine O'Clock News, I think, was probably the first... You've got a lot of awards here, haven't you? I have, yeah. I'll put these two... I'll put some two... One, two. 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 two th- this is, and this is just from this year. <laughs> That's bronze. <laughs> that's, a, that's better than gold. So, I don't, yeah, I just put that... They're there to intimidate you. <laughs> I know you, you won't have probably got a Chortle Award. So, um... But you have. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but not that I got news was, was one of the... Well, because I really loved Monty Python, but I was a bit too young for Monty Python, so I got to Monty Python through all the records and everything. And, like, in those days, comedy shows, like, came along about once every ten years, it seemed. And Not That Good News was, was one of these things that kind of came out. We were all really excited at school about this new show. And then I think, is this right? 
it was meant to start and then it didn't start. Is that right? The first series that there was there was an episode pending, yeah, and then it, because of the was it because of the, the Shah of Iran or something or the Ayatollah um, taken off? Yeah, it was uh, it was. Uh, uh, this is how different television is today than it was in 1979 when I'd done a, helped invent a couple of formats that had been taken to television but without me. And I was a bit cross and I went to go and ask essentially for a job as a production manager. And I walked in the head of department's office in television, Jimmy Gilbert, who'd started the Frost Report, and he, his first words were, what kept you? I said, you don't even know who I am. He said, oh, yes, we do. We, we've heard all your shows. They're very good. We thought you'd never make a producer if you can't be bothered to bloody ask for a job. So we've earmarked six half hours for you to make a new series with. And there's no rules, except it has to be funny, it has to be contemporary. And we thought we'd call it Sacred Cows, but you don't have to use that title if you don't want to. So there I was, I thought, oh, this is a lot easier than I thought. Um, the only condition was I had to go and see a guy called Sean Hardy, who's this lunatic current affairs producer who kept putting jokes into Panorama, and they didn't want him anymore. So, and I... You know, you know, you like radio too, and radio is basically a very simple medium, and there's not sort of clutter. You don't have to worry about car parking or catering, or just get on and do the jokes, or whatever. So I used to make three of those a week in uh, in the five years I was in Radio Four. So having got this news, I took a week off skiing, which is an amazingly stupid thing to do. <laughs> and in the run-up to what was going to be the first of six, it's now called the pilot, but it's actually the first of series one. It suddenly became clear to me and Sean that all the material we had was going to go into that first episode and what the hell we were going to do the following Monday, <laughs> we literally had no idea. And it was actually the last time I can remember that there was a, a, the wind that an election would be in the air. And we'd made the show on sort of Tuesday, it was going to go out on the following weekend. And elections always called on a Thursday. And on Wednesday night, for the last time in my life, I actually knelt by my bed and prayed to God, please let election be called. And there was. And so it was all cancelled. Uh, the pilot, I don't know if you've ever seen it online, but Mel Smith, who wasn't in it, described it as the single worst half hour of television he'd ever seen. <laughs> and I often say, when I put in these positions, being asked, asking questions, is it's, it's a very important thing in life. I, I express as disaster is a gift that very often you know, bad things that happen are often the making of you. So, yes. uh, and and that, was, that was one thing. I'd learned my lesson very, very fast on that. And so we, you got delayed by six months or yeah, so. Yeah, and we were able to rethink it. And Rowan was actually... Rowan and Chris Lang were the two people who survived from the cast. Managed to get Mel, who I'd always wanted, and I met Pamela Stevenson, as I've said before, at a party and fell in love with her and thought, you've got to have her, so... <laughs> And then, it, then it all went off because we were furious. I was—I I thought there was some kind of. Uh, I, I, mean, I never actually found out. I never bothered to check it. But at the time, I remember thinking there was some kind of BBC conspiracy because it looked like a really exciting. You know, it was the, the next thing that really hit was the young ones for me. Was, yeah. was after that when, when I was a little bit older. But you see them dotted through history, yeah. don't you? There's uh, for people younger than me. There's a Goon Show, and then there's Monty Python's My Student thing, and then there's Not the Nine O'clock News, and there's the Young Ones, there's the Fast Show. The, you know, the, there's a, there's a string of them, and there's. Yeah. They, we don't really have one. It's the show. I call it the show that tells fifteen-year-old boys what to think. <laughs> we, we need those to have, and it, it's just fascinating. Like, look what not the nine o'clock news became. It was considered to be a political act. So I was told that somebody very high up in the system had said, "Where's the new Monty Python? We haven't had anything for ten years. You've got yeah. to pull your finger out." 
And Light and Tone was this incredibly powerful, world-famous organisation which turned out wonderful shows. And they, I think, slightly reluctantly decided to get these two loonies, one from radio, one from current affairs, to see what they could come up with. I'll tell you, everyone on that show was a trainee apart from the floor manager. There was the director just come straight off his course. The secretary had been a receptionist. The production assistant had been a secretary. Nobody had any idea what they were doing. So we fumbled around for the first, you know, three or four. It started to get really good with a sketch called Life of Python, which was largely improvised with Rowan playing a bishop and, and Mel playing Alexander Walker, the film critic, and where they'd made this blasphemous film about our Lord J.C., quite obviously our Lord John Cleese, the Messiah, the comic Messiah. And it was a very naughty thing to do because Python, to our generation, when you, you didn't criticise them. So it started to come good. And then, uh, so at the end of the series, they said, well, we'll give you another go. BBC won't do that anymore if it's no. not huge at the beginning. Well, and also, you can't just walk in and go, they don't go, oh, yeah, we've been waiting for you to come. <laughs> I might try it tomorrow, I might try and walk in. Oh, yeah, we've been waiting for you. Oh, well, sorry, I didn't realise you've been waiting. But the thing is, particularly, particularly in jokes, that's the only way it works. You yeah. find people who are, uh, who are talented or potentially talented, and you trust them, and you let them learn. And that's the way, actually, you should teach children, as it happens, not tell people how to do it. And this hopeless system now where... Any idea that you take to anybody is filleted by committees and hierarchies of people until it, what remains of the original idea is, is not there. And then you make a pun, it doesn't work. They say, mm, it didn't really work. You say, no, but that's your idea. You made it like that. <laughs> well, it's true. And all the things I think that work, you know, even from On the Hour, which I was involved in with Armando Iannucci, yeah. they just let him get on with stuff and it's always yeah. great. And The Office, obviously, they just let them get on with yeah. it and they nearly just dumped it and... Uh, you know, because it wasn't put together by committee, but it just seemed to be very hard to get these. And when it, Monty Python was the same thing, wasn't it? They just walked into the office and said, "Oh, go and have eight programmes, and you can do whatever you like in them." Basically, well, they, was, yeah, they trusted I think them. Barry Took, I think, put it together. He'd yeah. seen Palin and Jones in one place, and the, on the Footlights, Lock Cleese, and um, so on, in the other place, and stuck them together and thought they might get on. Yeah, they didn't actually talk, but used <laughs> <laughs> to argue all the time. But they did great work, amazing work. But I got not 1982 the big calendar but uh, in our school like, we, we were all given I think I won a prize and I was allowed to pick any, pick any book and I put the, picked the not 82 book and my dad was quite cross with me <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I think it's fair to say though that as a comedy fan the not the 9 o'clock news books were a law of diminishing return the first ones were great and then the last couple were you cashing in a bit on those do you think as the, this is the 14 year old me coming back <laughs> I wasted a couple of Christmas presents as in life, <laughs> you know, QI's been running, what, 11 years, and it's the hardest thing is to keep up the, enthu- you know, keep up the fresh approach to it. It's not easy. Yeah. I see a lot of people here much younger than me or even you, and they probably won't remember not the 9 o'clock news, but, you know, it's hard to imagine just how famous it was. It was like a mixture of Little Britain and The Office all rolled into one, and we were on the front page of the newspapers quite often. Pamela Stevenson was the sexiest, you know, girl in the world, and Rowan was this amazing discovery, not necessarily by me. And, and you know, the ratings went up by a million a week, and uh, after the first series, they did a compilation from that first series, which was in many ways the weakest of the four, and it got 17 million viewers on BBC One. It was just massive. But you could be in those days, and it's, you, you know, that, that was not an unheard-of number. 
But you don't get those kind of numbers by poring over everything and taking low-risk decisions and doing something a little bit like what was done last week. You do them by you know, taking a, a, an act of incredible daring. That's how it pays off, I think. It was great. I, I, I remember I borrowed Phil Fry's copy of Hedgehog Sandwich. It was on LP, and I scratched it because I was trying to learn all the words to the songs. So I had to buy another copy. But so, you, um, you're right. Of course, we did four. We did four years. In fact, oddly enough, I found myself as you do late at night, pissed on YouTube, and I found <laughs> an old, uh, not the nine o'clock news from the fourth series. Right. And I watched this through. And I thought this is seriously good. And you know that thing when you look at things you did when you were younger and you think I, I'm not that good. I don't know how I did that. Yes. But as I watched through. <laughs> As I watched it through, you could see it was already getting, you know, fame and money is not good for people. I'm lucky that I'm not very, I'm not at all famous and, and have a surprisingly little money for, for <laughs> contribution I've made. And it's good because you have to keep going, you know. Yeah. It's like, I remember when Steve Coogan did a couple of series on telly and discovered he had a Ferrari addiction. <laughs> well, you should be so lucky, you know. Oh, I've got this terrible Ferrari addiction, doctor. I've got to, I got to buy another one. I, I don't know what I could do if I get another one. And, and um, that was, you know, back in the day, I often say that people like the two Ronnies, you know, Ronnie Barker worked in telly for, I don't know, 40 years or something. Um, you know, had a nice house in Chipping Norton, for all I know, a little cabin cruiser on, on the Thames at Reading, but he wasn't a millionaire, billionaire, you know. But, and like, then, a lot of people that you've worked with have gone on to be the richest yeah. people in the world. Yeah, it's is hard, that hard to, I mean, and for me as well, I have to say. It's yeah. the same thing. That, I know, it's hell. Is, that, is that hard to cope with? Because it's that... Well, it depends how, how much value do you place on money. In my yeah. case, you know, enough is nice, but too much is clearly not very good for you. Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't see any evidence that, uh, for example, Douglas became any happier for it. I don't, uh, you know, for somebody who can't hit back on Twitter at me. For example, <laughs> um, but and, and I think that uh, what tends to happen, I know this from ten years, more than ten years in advertising. Um, in the, after the third series of Blackadder, some idiot offered me a job directing a television commercial. I'd only directed one thing, which was a pop video before, and uh, we spent five months talking about the script for this thing. And I said to these two guys from the agency, "How many of these ads do you do do in a year?" Uh, you know. Uh, and they said, oh, about two, two ads? <laughs> what, two one-minute ads? Near? No, two 30-second ads, they said. <laughs> and when, the, when I saw what I got paid, well, f- first on the budget for these two one-minute commercials that I did was uh, the same as three episodes of Blackadder. And then when I got paid, I thought, well, my God, if I do four more of these, I can retire. It's fantastic. <laughs> and it was great the first few years, first three years doing it, because you get all the toys you can't afford on the BBC, the helicopters and the aircraft carriers and all that kind of thing. And then, <laughs> and then um, I suddenly found myself in a position where I had more money than I could easily spend. And I didn't un- enjoy it very much. And, you know, you kind of hit the buffers. You think, well, what, what now? You know, I've got all the things that I need, and now I don't want anything else. Now what do I do about it? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what started to happen with Not the Nine O'Clock News, you know, that you can't, once you've had the success, you know, which you've craved in all your teenage years or whatever, and suddenly you start to do things, and you start to take it for granted, and you think you've got the secret. And that's when you start to get shit, basically. And that's <laughs> when you start to get worse. You see it with stand-ups, don't you? You do. I think it's completely true. I mean, I, I feel... <laughs> 
quite lucky that I mean the only thing that you I haven't peaked yet. The only, the, only thing, the only thing I ever did that made money was uh, when I wrote Time General Police for Al Murray, which was like thirty. We did thirty-five episodes in two years, and I wrote pretty much all of it, and it was well paid. And I suddenly had a lot of money, and I went, and I didn't know what to do because we'd made no money up to there. So what I did was bought a house that was too big, so that I would then have to pay a lot of money. I'm the same, exactly what I have. Yeah. Yeah, so I then I have to carry, I've still got a big mortgage, so I've got to carry on working. Yeah. But I think it does. It, you definitely see. You know why? Why bother putting all of this work? Why bother doing five years of fucking free podcasts for idiots? <laughs> uh, if, you've, if you've got loads and loads of money, so you know. It's, it, and so I think it does keep you definitely artistically. I, I, I think with me and Stu, we, you know, we, we got to a point where. They could have, if the BBC had given a small series, it could have taken off in a way that Little Britain did. Probably not to the same extent, but it could have been that. And you kind of think, thank God it didn't, because you know we would have both gone crazy in different ways, but also coasted on that and, and then not done the things we've done in the last ten years. It's really hard to survive success when young and money. I know I've often say this to people... Um, you know, it's actually much easier to be a failure than to be a big success. I know it sounds ridiculous, but the universe, in my view, is built on paradoxes. You know, the paradox of quantum mechanics and relativity that don't match. They disagree with each other, and they always will, because that's what the universe is built on as paradox. There's plus one and minus one, matter and antimatter. There's nothing really here. It's a, a zero-energy sum, as they say. So, that, and, and, and one of them is this, um, you know, thing that you, you won't... I've lost my thread, Richard. <laughs> it was good. I, I was off for the fairies for a moment. I can't get back. <laughs> I can't really help you. It's, it's it? you We've say? got a, a nuclear physicist here. Was he right about the, uh, the and quantum mechanics? Definitely right. There we go. Look, that's uh, he's, we got. We I, I make sure that the front row is inhabited by. There's a astrologer further back. This is a nuclear physicist. So if you need any, well, is uh, the. Almost the most wonderful thing that happened to me recently in the last couple of years, I was on Brian Cox's show, The Infinite Monkey Cage, yeah. which is a show I really like. And on it was Sir Martin Rees, or Lord Rees, as we must call him, the astronomer royal, who happened to be master of my old college, and I knew very slightly. And um, we, stopped, we were talking about parallel universes, and uh, I've been saying now for at least 15 years the Big Bang Theory will never stack up. It will, it's going to fall to bits. <laughs> Uh, in the next 20 years, I said. And Martin started talking about this on the show, saying, of course, it is all crumbling. We think there may be little bangs. There's, you know, all sorts of uh, quantum fluctuations. There may even be something in Fred Hoyle's steady-state theory. You know, we don't know anything about how the universe began. It's just a guess. Uh, And similarly, when you go into quantum mechanics, you know, God, I wish somebody told me about quantum mechanics when I was at school instead of the physics that we were taught, which is, you know, spring balances and inclined planes and (laughs) pointless things you had to remember, rather than this amazing imaginative universe which is just fantastic, even just to think about, you know, what a a lepton does and, uh, you know, how how an atom's constructed and, you know... And this Higgs boson thing is another thing that interests me. Even Peter Higgs has started to say, I wish they'd stop going on about the Higgs boson. There are other things they're doing there. It's not just, it's not going to solve the... Do you know why it's called the God particle? The Higgs boson? Because it's the missing part of the universe, isn't yeah, it? Yes, so not. It was... It was uh, <laughs> It's not, and, and serious physicists don't think that either. The reason why it's called that is a, a book called Leon, by a Nobel Prize winning uh, physics laureate called uh, Leon Lederman, wrote a book, and he wanted to call it the Goddamn Particle, because it was so fucking difficult to find. 
and the publisher said we can't call it that because it'll put off the Christian movement so we'll call it the God particle and maybe get some of those in so that's, that's where it comes from is that right? It doesn't know. There you go. It's, uh, it's beyond Very just gone. But you spent like because you uh, as, as you you've spent kind of ten years trying to find the meaning of life. Basically, is what led up to QI. You kind of got depressed after. Was w- w- at what point you kind of lost faith in everything a little bit and then spent some yeah. time. Yeah. Well, I, it's to... partly. I mean, there were a number of reasons. I mean, I I got to the point where I had everything I could conceivably want. You know, houses and children and all lots of things I didn't expect to have and plenty of prizes. A lot more than those, I can tell you. <laughs> you got a bronze one. I've got one of those. No. Um, is, yours, is yours coming to bit? Look, mate, it's all coming, all coming off. But, um, <laughs> and, and then uh, it's like a house of cards. And then uh, two things happen: working in advertising is not good for the soul, and having children is very difficult if you are used to running things. You know, I was, I was running very big very difficult to run television series and you have to become a bit of an autocrat if you're running Spitting Image somebody has to have final cut and it was me and then when a two year old is bouncing on the bed and won't stop immediately it's very very annoying and then and particularly Harry my oldest now 22 used to ask these very difficult questions like you know I got to the age of 40 odd thinking I, I really know a lot I'm pretty good actually I've won you know more BAFTA awards than anybody else and you know blah 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 and Harry used to say things like, Dad, does God look after burglars? It's <laughs> quite difficult. And then his particular one I particularly like, well, and why is there something and not nothing? You know, that's a hell of a good question for a child, isn't it? N- not one that physics can answer, I, I think I'm right in saying. Um, and then he said, Dad, you know, you keep saying to me, if you watch too much television, you get square eyes. I said, yeah. He said, why don't they make an eye-shaped television that I can watch it as often as I like <laughs> So I got all these questions uh, from, from the kids and, yeah. and it started to drive me mad and then I got fired from a lot of things all at once. I've been fired a lot of times by people. Yeah. I thought very unfair and I got, I got very cross about that and yeah, I sat down to think, okay, well, I didn't see the point of going on. So I sat down to, you know, read a lot of physics, a lot of uh, Greek philosophy initially, m- mathematics started thinking about and then just went the whole, that's where QI comes from, basically reading far too many books about different things. Yeah. And you start thinking, well, first of all, uh, I think you can, if you're seriously interested, you want to know what the meaning of life might be. I think you'd take you about three years of solid work. Uh, And then the rest of your life is trying to live in such a way as to make that meaningfulness meaningful and and to do it properly. That's very, very difficult. I've got anywhere in that at all. (laughs) So you know the meaning of life, you just don't know how, how to put it into practice. Uh, well, I don't. I, I fail uh, continually at behaving optimally, as it were, in order to uh, to make the most of the, the short span that we have. Apparently, do you think? Am you I going to tell you what it is? Yeah, well, you can tell me what it is. But also, apparently, you think you might live longer. Do you think we? Do you think there's life after? I'm doing a show about death. Is my next show. Uh, uh, yes, I don't I, think there is life after death. Do you think there is life after death? Uh, well, it depends what you mean. You have to define your terms. Do you know this thing? <laughs> do you know uh, my faith at the moment? Agnosticism. Do you know this? Anyone, is, anyone seen my TED talk online? Anyone seen that? Agnostics are brilliant concept. It's, it's agnostics are people who refuse to discuss whether God exists or not until the terms are defined. <laughs> okay, so you tell me what kind of God I don't believe in, and then I'll tell you whether I agree or not. So can we agree, you know, I mean, how tall? Robe or not? Gimlet eye? Large forearms? 
Does he wear sandals or not, you know? Does he get Sundays off? I mean, you know, when we, when we work on some of this stuff, and then this is why atheism is so silly. Well, not believe in what? What is it? What, which is the God you don't believe in apart from all of them? Well, do you not think you can, if you look at history, you can work out where, where all gods were created by mankind? You can sort of work it backwards and reverse engineer and go, well, this god came about because people in the north, the, you know, the Vikings didn't understand why it went dark in the winter, so they created this god who flies across the sky and covers up the sun for three months or four months, whatever. So you can work out backwards. They're trying to, yeah, but you don't trying to they, answer everything. You don't think they really believe that, do you? Well, I don't know, but you wouldn't think people would believe any of the things that they get told. Most, most of the things that religion seems to espouse seem to be made up to make children comfortable with... I, well, I agree at the childish level, and the thing is that it's what, what Richard um, Dawkins has the thing, is he's basically arguing against two things, terrorism, which we all sign up to, that kind of stuff, and, and kindergarten Christianity, you know, which is... Yeah, but there's other levels of it. If you read St. Augustine... You think, okay, this guy's a seriously bright guy, as, as no doubt with some of these loony Vikings you talk, talk about. They're probably... Yeah. And, and atheism's always been there. There have always been people who, who don't sign up to the, the religions of the day. And the other thing is interesting is that heresy, which is continually stamped out by the Christian church, but also happens in Islam as well, all these people have the interesting ideas. The heretics say, well, it's not really like that. You see, Jesus wasn't really the son of God because God isn't a real guy. Do you get it? It's like it's kind of a metaphor for something else, for something you can probably, if you know anything about Buddhism or Taoism, you could sign up things like the way, you know, the pattern. There's a there's a grid, you know. If we if you think about physics in terms of there's some ideas in physics about the field, you know, we don't understand gravity. We don't understand why it's patchy across the universe. You know, you, you and I think, oh, they know all about gravity, physicists. No, they don't. It's the least understood of the four fundamental forces. They don't know about that. Do you know how many uh, chemicals there are in a wild carrot, Richard? <laughs> I do not know. Well, roughly. One? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, they think it's about 114, but they're kind of... Uh, a wild carrot's a very complicated thing, as is a mouse or a hedgehog. Yeah. You know, we don't really understand... The f- you can't make a wild carrot. You don't even know how many chemicals are there. They probably don't even know what colour one is. <laughs> Orange. <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> And, and yet people are happy to say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm an atheist, as if it's kind of like, that's a really original idea, well done. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not personal, it's just that it, what all these years of QIs taught me, the, the ten years before it, is that you better be awfully certain before you say anything that you know definitely to be true. You know, it's not, or, or untrue, because... You know, the history of science is the history of people changing their mind about things, you know. It is, but also, you know, science has achieved a certain amount of, of stuff that makes you think, well, they're heading in the right direction. Science has allowed me to fly, whereas religion has not allowed me to fly. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. you sort of sense that the scientists... And have you put that flying to good use, do you think? <laughs> um, well, yeah, I've been to <laughs> the Maldives. <laughs> Nice. Before it gets before it goes under the sea. <laughs> no, I mean I, I agree, science. But uh, I mean, I, I, really, it's not what, what I'm particularly interested. in. I mean, I think it's like I often say to Robin Inns, who you know who I've bumped into from time to time. It's it's odd, isn't it, Robin, that you talk about religion all the time and you're an atheist, and I hardly ever mention it, and I I don't know what I think. It's odd. And same with Richard. You know, he's oh, he should be doing his biology. Go and be like Steve Jones and look at a few more snails, you know. 
No, agree with that. Stop re- retweeting. You know, because we don't want, <laughs> we don't need another lecture on the Ten Commandments and how how crap they are. You know, should see my uh, show close to the mic. But it's not personal. It's just no, it's, no, no. I think it's, you know, I I, I just think um, I can't see. If there is a creator, why he's bothered doing it? That's the or he or she or what's it? What's in it for them? Well, I know. Let's, let's take that as a, a um, an argument. I mean, the two things. You know, this is just playing devil's advocate. So I'm not, I'm not signed up anything. So, what do you and I know about creativity and how it works? What it is is a is a series of fudges and improvements, isn't it? You try this, it doesn't quite work. You know, you try your stuff in a little pub and it doesn't work. So you try a bit more. You try a bit. Oh, that's a good idea. That works. I'll have that. And eventually you come up, if you're unlucky, with something that's a really good hour-long set. That's how creativity works. That's what we know. So the idea is, well, obviously they can't be a creator because there's so many mistakes. But that would lead me to think, then that's probably because it's a created universe. Because you can see the errors and the tryouts and so on. You know, Duckbill Platypus, clearly this, you know, tried a few bits, they didn't stick together. Off. <laughs> leave that over there for a minute. <laughs> But well, you know, the, the, there's not not to say that it, the universe wasn't created by someone, but if it, or something. But if it was created, it doesn't mean that they're but, still yeah, around. But as to, I say, to you, you're up. the guy who doesn't know what's in a carrot, for example. Now the thing is, when you and when you go on the test of uh, <laughs> you've just chosen the arbitrary carrot. I, if, you'd, if it had been a cucumber, I could have told you, but you've decided it's a carrot. No, I mean, but but let's say if. Um, Let's say there is uh, some entity that's clever enough to have created the world as we see around us and all the galaxies and so forth. How do you think you would be able to work out what their possible motive was for that? I mean, how clever would you have to be to even get some sort of grasp of of what's going on there? Well, I don't think I'm that clever, but I just wouldn't have bothered. if If I had the power to do that, well, if I had the power to do that, I wouldn't bother to watch out whether a man was sticking his winky in the man's bottom and get cross about it if I had the ability to create all the galaxies. And that's, that's I guess, where I, where I have a problem. Well, yeah, with just, just before I get lynched by this audience here, um, <laughs> I, I would say that these, I'm putting these things to you because they're the questions that started me thinking. Yeah. And as a result, I haven't, since I started thinking about it, I haven't been able to go. I, I do go to people's weddings and what, but I can't really go to church anymore because I've seen under the blanket and I know, you know, that, it, that people are looking the wrong direction, okay? When I found out, for example, as Isaac Newton did, that the Bible was completely rewritten at the orders of Emperor Constantine in the 4th century by Bishop, now Saint Athanasius of Alexandria, to make it fit better with what the Romans wanted. You know, it's a one-chance thing. The early Christians all believed in um, the transmigration of souls, reincarnation, and so forth. And that was all got out. You know, you want a religion where do what you're told or you go to hell. When you know that, and then you, you hear people say, well, the Bible's the word of God. Well, it isn't. It's the word of St. Athanasius, the Bishop of Alexandria. That's, that's, the, that's the end of it. And when I heard this, I went and reread Genesis. Well, I hadn't ever read the whole book before even as a schoolboy. But I have been 30-odd years as a script editor. (laughs) But when you read Genesis, it's so obviously terribly badly cut and pasted. There's about four stories all glued together in a terrible hurry. So you think, that is not the work, obviously not the work of God. It's not even the work of, you know, any particular scholar. It's somebody ham-fistedly bashing together. Yeah. Yeah. Ham-fistedly, yes. 
I think you know what my choice is going to be, ladies and gentlemen. We might never get I'm there, sorry, John. I know, we, you just, we, we never, I know you just want knob gags, really, but no. no, no we I have people to do that for me, Richard, you see. <laughs> no, I want to I I know that... Well, my show's in the, in the autumn's about the meaning of life, which I'm going to try and get into... And do, do you think there is any? Um, I, think it, I think it just comes down to... It doesn't matter if there is or not. I think we're probably never going to know if there is, so I think the meaning of life is to understand how incredibly unlikely... It is that any of us would be here for a thousand, well, an infinite number of reasons almost. But and see, that the, we should be making the most of the opportunity. That, I agree, and that's what, what the position eventually comes down to. Anybody who's a serious believer, beyond, you know, mad mullers and, you know, people who want to, uh, you know, Christian fundamentalists and everything else, that people come to the idea that actually the point is to do, behave well. That's what you need to do. And the Stoics would have said that, and so would the Epicureans, because... People think that Epicureanism, for example, is about, you know, rogering and eating pies. But actually, Epicurus worked out that the greatest pleasure he could have was to live a good life, including pies and wine and jagging, uh, although he didn't do a lot of it himself. So it all comes down to that. The, the thing is, it's important to do what's right because that's the right thing to do. There's nothing else to say. And it's not... And even in, in Christianity, you do not get to heaven. And you're deluded if you think you get to heaven by doing good works. You don't. You get there because you behave well mm. by God's grace I think if you can if the world's just on average slightly better than it was when you got there because of you that'd be quite a good thing to have yeah. you're going to do lots of bad things and lots of terrible things but if you can do enough good things to, to balance that up but, you know, then it's a definition of what's good and bad isn't it but the thing is I, I come to this position not because uh, you know I mean what, what did it for me was watching my children be born I think I could not understand where this consciousness came from where so obviously they were conscious as soon as they popped out it's not about, you know, uh, thinking there's life after death because one's frightened of dying, because I'm sure everybody is. But then there's the other thing, why? Why are people frightened of dying? They don't know anything about it. But it's also, not, it's for a built-in the first, thing. the first 13 billion years of the universe, you weren't here. So it'll just be the, there's no reason to presume it won't but there's be the no, same. But there's no way of proving that. We might well have been here. Why would you forget <laughs> it must have been amazing because that's well we, I'm getting close to giving it all away I mustn't do that <laughs> I'm going to sell my book um, but these things I mean it's just a different cast of mind I don't you know I've spent a lot of my life trying to solve difficult problems and make them look no, you know that's what programs are they're a series of incredibly difficult problems that have been solved and made to look easy you know when you watch you know Spitting Image you think well that looks easy you know, some puppets. <laughs> was it your idea? Well, that depends what you mean. There are a million ideas in Spitting Image and solving different problems. And so I've come to the conclusion that there, isn't, there aren't any problems, or there shouldn't be any problems, there are insoluble. And this one eludes us. You know, the meaning of life, why are we here, what should we do about it? It's really annoying to me that it isn't, in a, you, know, you can't buy the workshop manual in Smith's, you know. And I want to know why, and there's, there's got to be a reason for that. I don't think things happen without reasons. Ever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you. Uh, but more importantly, have you ever tried to suck your own cock? <laughs> There's something that we can answer yes or no to right now. Actually, no, I don't think so. Oh. Disappointing. Well, I mean, I, maybe before I was, when I was dip sucking my toes, I might have had a go. I can't yeah, remember. When you were a baby. Mm. That's disgusting. <laughs> <laughs>
And let's do the ham hand. If you, would you prefer, you've heard the question because you were here. Would you prefer to have a handmaid? You can ask any questions on top of this. I suspect you might. <laughs> is the hand really there at all? Uh, is uh, a hand made out of ham? You can eat the ham, but it'll grow back eventually, but not straight away. Or an armpit that dispenses sun cream enough for you and one other person to get through the year. This is like talking to um, Kirsty on Desert Islanders. <laughs> Could I have mustard in the armpit <laughs> instead of suntan cream? Is that what I would go for? I love ham and mustard sandwiches. But you wouldn't have, you wouldn't be able to have both, though, would you? you could, you'd have the mustard and then no ham. You can't have the ham and the mustard. You have to make a choice. That's why it's a brilliant question. <laughs> if you could just say, "Oh, am I allowed to have gold in the armpit and the hands made out of diamonds?" No, that is not the question. <laughs> the question is a ham and or an armpit that dispenses sun cream. Chris Addison wanted up other stuff in the armpit. He wanted a surprise at the armpit, which I allowed. A surprise Well, just, the you know, you, don't, you never know what's going to come out. It could be anything. Well, which I, 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 that's all right, but you can't have the ham hand if you have that. Can I have my cock in my armpit? For <laughs> like that. That, would, that would work for me. <laughs> would you like that? <laughs> what, so it's no. easier to suck or just say it's a nice surprise one? <laughs> You can get on with something else while you. Uh, oh, no, my dear. <laughs> it would mean you'd That's have to wank with your dead you know, you'd, oh, you'd definitely have to wank with one hand. I think, oh, but no, you'd be all right. You can do an underhand. That'd be like someone else was doing it. Uh, so, uh, good. Is that the answer? You want a cock in your armpit? Because <laughs> someone, someone somewhere is going to put these on the internet eventually. Someone's going to give everyone's answer on the internet, and that will, when they Google you. If you're there, that's the that's the man who wants a cock in his armpit. <laughs> Have you ever seen a ghost? No, no. <coughs> Disappointing, isn't it? <laughs> no one has. Uh, but again, it's not something that I would um, I would necessarily uh, rule out. Right. But no, and, and I don't I don't personally believe in ghosts. But uh, but that I hesitate. That's just my opinion. It's not a fact. It's not, I'm more right if, if you... I know you don't believe him because you just I did said say so. before. Well, you know, you never know, do you? But there must be what? something mysterious that you don't believe in that you might come round to, for example. I'm very open-minded about it. I'd love there to be ghosts. Do you know why things are funny? Um, do you know what art is? Do I know what art is? <laughs> uh, do you know I why think... the seed of the sequoia tree is, like, absolutely tiny? There's, like, 40,000 of an ounce or something, and it's the biggest tree in the world. Do you... I don't know why no. that is, no. No, but the thing is, we don't know... Do you know anything about consciousness, the hard problem, as scientists call it? Do you know what that is? No. I don't know anything. No. I'm, I'm just realised. I'm just saying that, that it's not, I'm not being... It's not personal, Richard. You know, Seems you're, to be. You're a... Seems to be like, you've gone to someone and go, do you know what stuff Richard doesn't know about? Yeah, make a list of it and I will... Does he know what's in a carrot? He definitely doesn't know that. <laughs> Put that, put that on the list. They'll look like a fucking idiot. <laughs> no, but just say it's not. It's certainly in no way is it personal. This is no. just the thing. Is that's what what happens. That's what makes it personal. He says no, it's, it isn't. It's not personal. If he hadn't said it's not personal, it's just a QI I wouldn't thing. have taken it personally. It's the fact he's saying it's not personal that's getting to me. Yeah, sorry. It's a, it's a QI thing. Nobody knows anything very they much. They know only a very very narrow range of things and they don't connect them together so they don't think about these big imp- they just take that for granted they say well scientists know about that or artists know about that or comedians I said before that 
somebody offered me a job at university as professor of comedy, and I said, well, I can't do that because nobody understands how that works. We know when it works. It's a bit like gravity, you know. We know when it works, but how? Nobody's got any idea. Nobody can tell you how to be funny. Or where it comes from. No. Because sometimes it feels like it... See, th- there are things like that, that sometimes it feels like a, a joke has come fully formed into your brain yeah. that you haven't thought about, that it feels like it's been... Most of As It Occurs to Me felt like it had been beamed into my head. Not but, by someone particularly funny, what... I have to say. <laughs> it was good, at least it was a script. But that, that's the case in point, is, you know, when we say, where does an idea come from? You're an idiot if you say it comes from inside my head. It, it clearly comes from some... It arrives, it occurs to you, you know, an idea occurred to me, say, it's like you, you bump into someone in the street, that's what, what ideas are like to me, and they're mysterious. I remember um, uh, working with a wonderful physicist called Paul Davis, who, who briefly considered the idea of being an um, equitable life ad on television, um, and we got to talk about things, and I said, this is a question, I just got interested in this stuff, it's when I just had my little bit of a, a froth, and uh, I said, where, where do ideas come from? He said, God, that's a brilliant idea. I don't know. That's, I never thought about that. He said, I often like crosswords, you know. He said, when I'm doing crossword, and often something occurs to me, you think, where's that come from? And it's, it's one of the really interesting ideas. Here's another one that I came across the other day. One, another thing my son Harry said to me when he was about 14, he said, Dad, can you remember what I was like when I was two? I said, well, of course, Harry. Like, it was yesterday, actually. He said, why can't I? I thought, that's a brilliant question. That's a really odd, because none of us can, can we? Maybe one or two incidents. I claim to remember the coronation when I was two and three quarters. I just read in the paper yesterday that this remains one of the big questions of science. Why, why, why is that uh, hidden from us? Because you're a dick, that's why I know. So it's just like your brain's too embarrassed to remember how stupid you yeah. Also, if you could remember coming, if you could remember being born, I think you would look at your parents in a different way. <laughs> so I think there has to be an element where the first. That's just Stephen Fry's joke, because did you tell that one last week? He said that it's the last time I'm going up one of those. So. <laughs> no, 5%. My wife's in the 5%, he, cl- he, t- he said afterwards. Five percent of women. What? I, what he said. He, he said he's got five five percent of women that he fancies. My my wife's. Well, I don't know if that says she's mannish or not. But, and he's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, she's very. She's very. She's as you know. You've seen her. She's way too way too good for me. Uh, so I'm. I'm sorry, darling. I love you. Don't please don't please don't hit beat me again afterwards. <laughs> Are you glad that you ended up not presenting Have I Got News For You? Let's move on to this for a second, and then we'll come back to this. Because I think, yeah. well, I'm, 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 before we go on to that, do you think, don't you worry by overthinking stuff that you turn into, you, you overthink stuff so much that you, in fact, go a bit crazy like David Icke and that bloke who was on uh, the Andrew Neil show um, <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> on Sunday? Yeah, I did, I used to think that. I used to think that if you... If you start getting interested in these things, you're going to not have a sense of humour and the life is going to be very dull. And, and actually, you get out the other side of that, I think. Yeah. Um, and you I, I know I failed you here tonight, Richard, but I mean, <laughs> generally, it's... This is good. This is good stuff, John. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to start. I'm not going to be personal. This is good stuff. <laughs> uh, this is really good stuff. Let's... Because uh, you, you came up with a format for Have I Got News For You. John Lloyd's News Round. Is that yeah. what it was going to be called? Uh, yeah. 
was a, That's a bad name. It's a terrible time, yeah. isn't it? But and you so really, is Have I Got News For You, actually, yeah, the is. worst title in the world. But it, but it doesn't matter because it's such a good show. I think, it? well, not as bad as Nevermind the Buzzcocks. That is the worst no. title for... That's just rubbish. But yeah. it, once, once it's established, it's, uh, mm. it's good. But you were going to host it, or you hosted the pilot. I did, yeah. So that could have been a different world of hookers and cocaine for you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't well, know if that I came with the job. I, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, um, I wasn't that keen. I was just started directing ads, so I was making loads of money, having a lot of fun. And uh, but they asked me to do this. I think in part the idea was, as I'd invented the format on the radio, that if they got me aboard, then people would sort of some it would somehow give give them, you know, make it look less like stealing, basically. I suppose <laughs> um, because it was. It, Strictly owned by the BBC, really, because I was a staff producer. Was it, the, was it from the news quiz? Yeah, originally? yeah from the news originally. Uh, but but I, I don't know. Uh, anyway, so um, the first thing is you once you go from radio to telly, you've got to you've got to look nice. So I got taken out shopping, and I got bought these suits I would never wear, and strange bright red shoes that I would never put on that didn't fit, and uh, in this rather uncomfortable garb, I. Um, went into makeup, which had never happened to me before, and the makeup lady's just making me orange, and she said, oh, you're losing your hair, aren't you? <laughs> that was a horrible thing to say, because I was, you know, I, I, it had never occurred to me, I was in my 30s, that I was starting to lose my hair. And so I went out in front of the audience, you can imagine how cheerful I was. <laughs> the warm-up went down like sick, you know, and, and I wasn't, I, I really wasn't very good. And so afterwards I said to J- Jimmy, the producer, and I don't think it's really me, so, and he, he got a bit cross at me. Um, <laughs> he said, we bought you those red shoes. Yeah, You're fucking going to present this, even though they're under the desk and we can't and see. And it's hard to imagine, but it was actually, given how famous Angus has become and how brilliant he was at it, he's much better at it than I would have been, is that it was a disaster for them because they very nearly didn't get the, the pilot picked up because they, believe it or not, wanted me because in the late 80s, you know, I was, you know, quite well-known, I suppose. And, and they thought it would work because I've got on very, very well with Ian Hislop and, and Paul Merton in a way that Angus didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Is that going to be on the papers tomorrow? <laughs> if you go a little bit further, it might be. <laughs> you can go into details. Well, I think it's clear they didn't... Uh, they weren't that bothered when he, he went... Or they kind of seemed to push him a little bit, didn't they? The, uh, when they, I think that's probably true. Yeah. yeah. So I think that was fairly uh, clear, at least by that stage. But uh, that's interesting. I've got some questions from uh, the Welsh children. Um, <laughs> um, although, well, well, Archie has said, uh, "What's it like being John Lloyd?" I want to be in the papers. <laughs> so we'll ask that because I think we should ask that. I should have asked Mary that. Uh, what's it like being? Is that, was that the original question? Yeah. What's it like being John Lloyd? That's a weird question. It isn't is, it? but so, this is what this is what last week led to us getting on the news. So uh, off you go. <laughs> <laughs> Does Andy want to open up about... Have you ever killed a, a man <laughs> just to watch him die? Uh, <laughs> um, I, I, that's a question... Um, uh, I remember when I was casting some kids in a, in a commercial for something or other, and I said to them, what, what's your, they're about seven. What's your mum and dad like? I said, I don't understand what you mean. They're my mum and dad. There's nothing else to say. It's like... What's it like being me? Well, it is just like it's just I don't know. It's all I know. So, um, 
Can anyone else think of a good answer to that question? It seems <laughs> Stephen Fry did pretty well, didn't he? <laughs> he did all right. Well, that's when he, he revealed. About yeah, it was. The, yeah, that was the question, uh, which I you know. I think you know, it's a kind of question a child would ask, but I think it's sort of an interesting. Well, I think it's a very, very interesting thing because the question of identity of who you are and whether that extends either side of your apparent birth and death is an interesting idea, and whether people have multiple identities, you know, outside the multiple identities they might already have in in life. I'm you're not going to get in the papers, Archie. I'm sorry, it's not. You're not gonna... <laughs> I'm determined not to get in the papers. <laughs> well, that's good. It's good not to get in the papers. I, I work with Richard Bowden on Time Gentleman, please. He's yeah. the director of uh, the Black Adder Goes yeah. Forth, um, and it's quite interesting. I think this has probably been talked about a little bit, but it's quite interesting the way that the the famous scene of Black Adder, the final scene of Black Adder, came about. So, was that, did you have a part in 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 that where they all go up out, uh, over the trench and they all kind of die and it turns into the poppy fields yeah this wasn't a deliberate this wasn't what you kind of intended basically was it uh, well we we intended it was um it's a really interesting thing you know Blackadder being so successful it was constant frustration that the well, I kept saying to Ben and Richard we must write the episode where they're all just stuck in one room like Hancock's Sunday at home you know because that's classic sitcom if you can do that just have five or six characters at the most and they just talk to each other you don't need anyone else and Blackhead doesn't conform to that model. You know, most weeks, in comes Saul to Raleigh was the biggest part, or Dr. Johnson, or, you know, um, Flash Hart, mm-hmm. uh, who have these great big set pieces. And I've pushed them for ages to try and do this thing. And they finally come up in the last episode of the last thing. And it's a brilliant, brilliant piece of writing. And I think we all knew it was all over. And it was very moving in the way that the episode worked. If, I'm sure many of you have seen it, is it, it starts very funny and silly and that gradually all the colour and the laughter drains out of it becomes quite sad and even the people you've kind of despised and hated you see uh, it's, it's, it's very moving and wonderfully well acted and what we wanted was then a brilliant uh, scene at the end where they all get killed or probably get killed and so we took over whole of one of the studios at Television Centre, the main one had the main sets in it and the one next door had this amazing no man's land. I went in there, it was seriously scary. I mean, seriously, even without, you know, the, the lights on. There's something spooky about it. Even if you stood in the set in Blackadder, you went into the trenches and you looked at the psych, you know, the blue sky above, the barbed wire, just, oh, look, gives you the creeps, really. So um, the gallery, as usual, we're overrunning because we've done too many retakes or whatever, something's gone wrong. So um, we, so... There's a PA in the other studio, right? Okay, cue all the stuff, lights go on, pyrotechnics, amazing explosions, and the actors hadn't had time to rehearse it, so they're coming up the ladders onto this no man's land, which they hadn't even trodden before, and there's loads of earth and bits of real barbed wire, and the explosions going off, and it's dark, you know. Um, and it's like, you know, two minutes to ten, I said, I got on the, on the PA and said to the girl, um, can we just want one more take, please? We just, it's just hopeless. Because it was hopeless. You could see them. So, oh, Hugh Laurie, oh, for fuck's sake, what's this? And he's, oh, I just trodden in something. Ah, I caught my, my leg on this. And it was really terrible, you know. And so Rowan gets on the walkie-talkie and he says, I'm sorry, John, we're, we're basically going on strike. It was really a horrible, horrible experience. Everybody here is really frightened and, and it's fucking, you know, it's a mess in here, honestly, and it's a, a disgrace that we should have to do this, so I'm sorry, no. So I went home very depressed because it didn't have a, a decent take, and when we got into the edits and we cut this thing, it was fantastic, you know, and, and they bit when Rowan blows the whistle and, you know, I have a cunning plan, sir, 
Um, and and we men- mended it that far, and then we had this awful bit of stuff on the end, and then gradually, it's a wonderful example of teamwork that piece by piece, each person in the room, there were about five or six of us there, I suppose, had a different idea, so the editor, Chris Wadsworth, says, maybe if we put it into slow-mo, we could, that would maybe just, you know, take the edge off it in some way, maybe extreme slow motion, perhaps. And then the assistant editor said, yeah, I'll tell you what, Chris, what about going to monochrome at the same time, make it black and white, you start, you start your skin starts to prickle, you think, ooh, that's kind of interesting. And then Howard Goodall had composed the music, it was a single piano and a gym, and then they said, what about slowing the music down as well? And now something really starts to happen. It's this incredibly plangent sound. You know, we're mucking around with all the buttons. And then the last thing was, that I think the PA said, I've got a great idea. I, I think I saw a wonderful picture of some poppies up in the photo library. I'll just nip up and get it. So she goes up and does that. And then you've seen the sequence that they go up, the music starts, and it's very, then they all start to fall to earth. And then there's this incredibly long mix. It goes on for about 10, 12 seconds. And poppies appear to grow out of this monochrome earth and go red, and then it just says Blackadder, 1453 to 1917. And my only contribution on it was to say we can't put credits on this. It would be an insult to all the people who died in that war on either side. So that's all. Everything else was done by all those other people. I had no creative contribution. As the most extraordinary thing that you, when you, I call this touching the numinous, sometimes, only about three or four times in my life, you do something which is based on maybe 10 years very hard work and something happens. You get a little thing, you think, ooh. And the abiding thing, people often say, are you proud of that? And I say, well, I'm proud of the people who made it, that I was in the room. I'm proud that I was proud to be with these amazing people who made it happen, who didn't give up under pressure and didn't shout or blame people, which would have been easy to do. And then this thing happened. That was the most amazing uh, thing. Because, you know, if top ten television moments around the world, you quite often see it in there, along yeah. with the moon landings, that kind of thing. And that's why I started to be interested in the idea is how much are we actually responsible for anything that really happens to us? Because sometimes it is a sort of God particle moment that something really extraordinary happens that you're really only peripherally involved with. And anyway, I took this, uh, I took this um, rough cut home to show it to... Sarah, my wife, we'd, um, we'd uh, only just got married. We were living in this little one-bedroom flat. It was an open-plan thing with a kitchen and a television and a sofa between. And so I was making some supper for us, very, very proud of this amazing thing that we'd done. And um, I, uh, I saw a watch, and it came to an end, and the, you know that fuzzy bit when the, the, uh, the colour bars go and it runs out and it's just the tape just going around blank. And Sarah's sitting there, I could just see the back of her head over the sofa. And I thought, what a cow, she's fallen asleep, I don't know. <laughs> she's just sitting there motionless. And I went round and I looked at her to see, see her apparently snoring. And she's just sitting with her eyes open and tears were just pouring down her cheeks. It was a really incredibly moving moment. But I say the curious thing is that one's main emotion when there was a, a sense of, uh, of um, humility, of almost embarrassing to have been over-rewarded for something. Um, yeah. yeah, but I think, I guess, when, whenever any good comedy show or any piece of art comes together with this a group, group effort is about all the, the different aspects of that coming together, so the performance and the writers and, you know, and everything. Chris Wadsworth is a fantastic editor. He is, it's an interesting. Good. Oh. But it is, it is interesting, just that thing of... 
that's what interests me in life. It interests me is getting to that moment of excellence. And I, I say you can't legislate for genius. Nobody, nobody's a genius, really. But what you can take credit for is, is in not giving up when things get difficult and, and you know, trying to go on and on. And, and, and just every so often you get these amazing things. We think, And I always have the feeling, always, when I've been involved in something really good, that it's not me. It's, it's that one is a, kind of a, a, a medium, if you like, a conduit for something... Um, larger, some some greater consciousness that involves more than one one mind. But if the same person keeps on cropping up in the things that are successful, that does suggest there's a bit more to it than <laughs> than that. So I mean, you know, everything you've been involved with has been. But the thing is, okay. So the, I mean, I'm sorry to go on about this. these things. Interest me. Okay. So one of the things that I think is that great art. It is impossible to achieve great art with the ego in place, and that what. You know, sportsmen call it the zone. You know, in 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 painting and dance and everything, everybody knows that um, that feeling when you're doing something really well. That time dilates and uh, you have no sense of self. You really, I get this a lot when I'm film directing. You know, you think film directing is a very arrogant thing to do, but actually, it's the reverse. That great film directors actually don't have an ego. They're 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 so focused on the work, um, and that this the business of getting connected with some greater um, it's not intelligence that I think intuition or um, is, is, is when that happens um, there's something really um, magical going on that doesn't involve you know men in white beards or anything it's just that, um, that and so the if if I've been uh, good at a few things or done a few good things, it's, it's much. It's not really to do with anything, anything to do with talent. It's to do with believing in certain kind of core values of honesty and courage and determination and and that kind of stuff. That's what I think and it's about. And probably giving a fuck, isn't it? Isn't I it do quite, give a fuck. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. So I think a lot of people, when it goes wrong, it's just you think, oh, people go, oh, that'll do. Yeah, I don't have that button. No. <laughs> I don't have a that'll do lever really ever. Do you think that you could have saved the right way if you'd produced that? Because <laughs> <laughs> that's written by the same person as wrote uh, Black Adam Got Forth Goes Forth. Well, I think everybody needs an editor. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and a bin. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it just shows you, you know, the thing is that you get, you get famous and, and regarded and nobody dares tell you anymore what what to do and, and I, I, an awful lot of my friends have got to that position where they think yeah you may be right yeah maybe we do good things but I don't want to be told any more what to do and I don't want to be disagreed with I want to have my own way because because that's what I want and I can have it because I'm rich and famous and that doesn't, doesn't, isn't a very good idea in anybody's you know anybody's book <laughs> I could do with a cop joke now just take it off um, I think it's been amazing. Yeah, I think, I, think I, don't, I don't think uh, you know. It's not. I'd like to see the Daily Mail try and get this into a headline. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to see Eamon Holmes trying to discuss this on Sky Sunrise this week. I don't think it's going to happen, but I'm very glad about that. It was really interesting. Thank you very much. It was not even quite interesting. It was very interesting. Please give it up for John Lloyd, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. You have been listening to Richard Herring's Letters Square Theatre Podcast with me, Richard Herring, and my guest, John Lloyd. 
The music is by Pest, thanks to Orange Mark and everyone at the British Comedy Guide and to Chris Evans, not that one, or the one from The Avengers, uh, and his team from Go Faster Strike. It was produced by Ben Walker. This is a fuzz. Go Faster Strike and Sky Potato production for the internet. How'd you like them Sky Potatoes? <laughs> thanks for listening to Rich Herring's Leicester Square Theatre Podcast. There's lots of ways you can pay us back for this free podcast. You can go and download video versions of these podcasts for £3.50 a shot or £15 for the series pass, which will be at least seven podcasts plus the bonus Pappies podcast from McKenzie. You can go to gofasterstrike.com and just buy some of my DVDs or books and that would be a way of me keeping things going <laughs> and earning some money. You can come and see my live tours. I'm doing a show called We're All Gonna Die, which is going to be the Edinburgh Fringe, 8 o'clock at the Presence Beyond, or Richard Herring's Edinburgh Fringe podcast, uh, which is at Stand 1 at 2.10, pretty much every day of the Fringe. Producer Ben has uh, other podcasts called Do The Right Thing and uh, Pappy's Flatshare Slamdown, which you can also listen to. They're free as well. But if you can spread the word about all these podcasts, that will be another way of helping us. Next week's guest is Russell Brand. It's all sold out on the night, but you can buy the video or we'll be back up here next week on audio for free. Thanks a lot. Goodbye.